We have two passages this morning. Uh, The first is from Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Verses... um, We're going to start about halfway through... Well, we'll read all of 19. Uh, 12, 19 through 25. And then we'll flip over to uh, 2 Thessalonians. Hear now the word of the Lord. After Herod searched for him, this is Peter, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Belastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. As you turn to 2 Thessalonians, I will say, I tried to find a children's bulletin that illustrated Herod beating eating by worms. Surprisingly, they don't make one. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you is believed. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that Your Word is true and active, that though this world fades away, though the grass withers and the flowers fade, Lord, we thank You that Your Word will stand forever. And so, Lord, as we come to it, we pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouth would be glorifying and acceptable to You, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. When I was in 10th grade, there was this really small, insignificant, clear-cut election you might remember. It was the uh, Gore-Bush election. Do you remember this thing? It was, man, it was just, it was run so well. Well, we stayed up all night waiting for the returns. Do you remember that? You know, there was concession. I think Gore conceded and then he unconceded his concession and uh, people were calling the election one way and then the other, um, other networks were calling it another. And, you know, we stayed up all night waiting for those returns and we actually didn't know who won until the Supreme Court got involved in December. But we didn't know that at the time and this was a big deal. It's all, the next election is always the biggest one. That, that's every, every election has been like that. 
This was not any different. So we all stayed up. Well, this was a big night for me. I was in 10th grade. Uh, it probably dates me, right? For some of you, that makes me old. For others, that makes me very young. Um, it was not only a national election night, it was also the night before my honors chemistry test on entropy. Now, Dan and I have talked about this. He's tried to explain what entropy is. I have no clue. I didn't know then, and I don't know now. And so after studying for a bit, I'm now studying in front of the television, always a good recipe, I finally put the books down to watch the results. There's always a day of reckoning, isn't there? There's always a day of reckoning. Sometimes with credit cards at the end of the month, sometimes decisions you make in college, it's later in life. But for me, the day of reckoning was the next day. And oh, what a reckoning it was. The next week I got my test results back and it's never, it's never good when the teacher saves your test for last and pulls you outside of the room to talk to you about your test. And I made a 46 out of 100. That number doesn't average so well, does it? It was a day of reckoning. Well, of course, there is a greater day of reckoning. And not for failing to study, but for failing to uphold the law of God transgressing his commandments and not giving God the glory due his name. This, of course, is the day of judgment. It is a real thing. What we do and say, these things matter. Everyone will be in attendance on the day of judgment. This day will especially be bad. And this is, this is what we're looking at today. This, this day will be especially bad for those who persecute the church. There will be a day of reckoning. But for the believer, we are reckoned as righteous because of what happened at the cross. There will be a day of reckoning, but as believers, we have been reckoned as righteous because of what happened at the cross. That's, that's just phenomenal news. Of all the things we say in the Apostles' Creed, they're all important, but my favorite is we believe in the forgiveness of sins because it makes all the other ones accessible to us. The final day of judgment, the day of reckoning, will be bad for all those who have not trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. But if we appear before the judgment seat of Christ without being Christians, without having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and robed in His righteousness, it will be bad. But it will especially be bad for those who have sought to oppose God's people. Jesus just takes it personally. Do you remember what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus? What did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why, why have you been persecuting me? Well, Jesus has ascended and gone back to heaven. How was he persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting his people. Isn't it good to know that Christ so closely identifies with his people that to persecute his people is to persecute him? He takes it rather personally. There are times in which it appears that persecutors will get away with it. Indeed, there have been generations in, in church history in which God's people have been oppressed. And God's people wondered, where are you, Lord? Read the Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Like the 400 years that Israel spent enslaved in Egypt. How long, O Lord? 
or when God's people were sent into exile because of their disobedience. It was their fault. But still, you had God's people crying out, How long, O Lord? Or Christians in places like Iran and Turkey. Or, you know, there are concentration camps still around. They're not for Jews. Praise God for that. They're for Christians, and they're in North Korea. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of believers are in concentration camps in North Korea. Or what's about to happen in Afghanistan? You know, as the Taliban takes over, it's going to be real bad for Christians. The Taliban's already said so. They've, they've told the missions agencies, we, we know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. You know, while it seems that these persecutors are escaping the justice and judgment of God, right? Because I mean, these, there will be people who will die. There are people that die every day because of their faith in Christ. The Word of God tells us there will be a day of reckoning. On the day of judgment when Christ returns. And the Second Thessalonians passage which talks about hell. It is a passage about hell. Hell is a real place and that's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. Apart from what Christ has done for us. But Paul speaks of hell in terms of speaking in regarding those who had persecuted the church. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-6 makes it abundantly clear. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Righteous judgment of God. God is a righteous judge. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. These believers have been suffering for Christ since the Thessalonian church had been founded. It was founded in persecution. And were those who were oppressing them, would, would they get away with it? Would they get away scot-free? Where are you, Lord? What are you going to do about it? Verse 6 says that God will repay with affliction those who are afflicting them. In verse 8, he says he will inflict, inflict vengeance. I was talking about this passage with our Thursday morning Bible study, and they reminded me of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's tough, isn't it? You know why we like to avenge ourselves? Because we don't want someone to get away with something. We feel uh, really upset when someone gets away with doing something. I don't want them to get away with it. So we're mean back to them. But leave it to the wrath of God, Paul says. For it is written, vengeance is mine. And then it says something really important. It says, I will repay, says the Lord. So this payment's going to come in two places. And people will experience one or two. And the first is where we deserve to be in hell forever. We will pay for our sins, but not satisfy them, not satisfy thy debt. We'll be continuing to pay. Or Christ has paid for it on the cross. God will repay. And He has repaid it upon the cross for those who trust in Him, but for those who oppress the church and don't come to Christ like Saul did, right? Isn't that great news that Christ would even die for those who were oppressing His people? For those who oppress the Lord and His people, the judgment day will be a day of reckoning. It'll be very bad. See, no one's going to get away with anything. The Lord God is the one who doesn't just see all and know all. He knows every thought like we talked about with the children. Every fleeting evil we consider. There's not a drop of water. He doesn't intimately know its path and He knows the stars by their name. And on the one hand, this is disconcerting, isn't it? 
And it should be a little disconcerting, realizing that our thoughts are, are laid open, laid bare before the Lord God. Who would want their thoughts on a screen behind them before everybody? Nobody. You'd never talk to me, I'd never talk to you. Those things are known by God. And yet, and yet, He still loves us. Isn't that fantastic news? It's disconcerting that we are held accountable for things. It's, it's encouraging, it's lovely, it's grace-filled, it's merciful that Christ knows all those things. And He still loves us. He loves us so much that He paid for those transgressions. But I think also there's something really important here that we don't really fully understand here in the South, this idea of vengeance. That vengeance is good. Not that we go after vengeance. But justice is good. Think about those believers in Afghanistan who will be soon facing very significant challenges. Or believers in Iran where it's just plain illegal to be a Christian. Or China. Or those in the concentration. Don't, don't you think they long for justice? It's good to long for that kind of justice. They won't get away with it. You know, sometimes we talk about uh, Christmas came early this year. You know, like, um, that's not just like a COVID thing, like we rescheduled it. Uh, no, I mean, like Christmas comes early because we get a bonus or um, someone gives us a nice gift or, you know, we find a $20 bill in a, in a pocket. and That's always fun, right? Um, but there's also something we'd say, sometimes judgment comes early. Romans 1 says that uh, the wrath of God is being revealed against all um, unrighteousness. Being revealed against sin. And sometimes the judgment that is coming at the day of judgments comes crashing in into time and space history. And that's what happens in our text this morning. Last week we left Herod in Caesarea where he had traveled after trying to kill Peter. Uh, an angel had um, sprung him free. You know this had to have been politically embarrassing for Herod, right? I mean he had promised uh, the, the head of, of Peter on a platter pretty much. Uh, for the Jews, and yet he lost them. And so he went to Caesarea, which is the headquarters of the Roman area there of Palestine. But in Caesarea, another political scene plays itself out. See, to the north of uh, Caesarea was the region of Phoenicia. Now these are all just names to us because we don't know this area. Most Bibles have a map, and in the, in the, it's going to have these two sections it's going to have Caesarea's major city and Phoenicia right above it. So you can always go look at this thing. Uh, Phoenicia was the area, uh, a great, great trading area. There were these two cities that were really important called Tyre and Sidon. They had been in an economic relationship with Israel going all the way back even before uh, David's reign. They were, they were economically intertwined. This would, and it was much like China and America. Right? We always have these spats between China and America. But when it comes to trade, we actually need each other. I mean... The, the shelves at Walmart are pretty bare these days, but can you imagine how bare they would be if all the stuff from China was no longer there? You'd have like one section, that's it. Well, as with any kind of trade um, relationship, oftentimes there were punitive tariffs and people would do things to get each other's attention. They played dirty, economic warfare, and that's apparently, we don't know for sure, that's apparently what Herod had done. See, he was angry with Tyre and Sidon. We don't know why. The word angry here in the Greek uh, means to almost wage war. I mean, this is an ongoing hostility that Herod has towards the Sidonians and the Tyrians, as they are called. But you know, you never want to be a disadvantaged party in a negotiation, do you? 
That's not a good place to be. That's not a good place to be. I, I remember we sold our house in Montgomery after having been here three or four years, and y'all, it was a financial bloodbath. Because we knew we were the disadvantaged party, and so did the buyer. And it was real bad. Praise God we got rid of that thing. Now that's exactly what's going on in this text. The Sidonians and the Tyrians, those who live in Tyre and Sidon, they were dependent on, on Israel not just for luxury goods. They were dependent on them for their food. And so as one commentator said, they came cap in hand to see Herod, to try to get peace worked out. And so they convinced Herod's right-hand man, his, what's called his chamberlain. He was over his household, kind of like a chief of, uh, chief of staff. His name was Blastus. Oh, what a great name. And they apparently through a bribe or something, they were able to pray, persuade him so they could get a, an, an audience with Herod. And so they waited for an audience. And so we read in verse 21 what happens. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. You ever been, I was about to say preached at. <laughs> Hopefully I don't do that. Uh, there's a difference being preached to and preached at, talked to and talked at. Right? This was, he, he, was, um, he was haranguing them. This was not a pleasant experience. There's a, a great historian of the day, a guy named Josephus, and he actually recounts all of this as what happened. It's an amazing thing to read. We find from him that this was in an amphitheater that was attached to the palace. This was a big amphitheater. It could hold about 3,500 people. And it, the whole thing was actually covered with, the, a skin, with skins of animals. So it was nice and shaded. At least part of it was covered. It was a really expensive thing. There was an Olympic-sized swimming pool in this complex. And they would have games there. Uh, not, you know, not like uh, tiddlywinks kind of games, but... but Harmful games, uh, games to get everybody excited, bloody games. And, and every five years there were these games in honor of the, C of the Caesar. And this was that time. And so he waits for this time to bring these, this delegation from Tyre and Sidon who had come to negotiate. And he's going to do it now. Anytime you do something in public like this, it's, it's generally not going to go well. But see, he, did, he expects it not to go well for the Tyrians and the Sidonians. But in reality, it goes very poorly for Herod. See, what he did was, he waited until right after the break of day. This is all from Josephus. Not scripture, but helpful to give us information here. He apparently waited until right after the break of day. So the sun was coming up. And he wore this very special robe that was lined with silver thread. And it was designed so that the sun would reflect off this thing. And he would just shine in front of everybody. And so as he, as he does this and he sits down on his judgment seat, his throne. <laughs> there's a little play on words there and he's about to get judged. As he sits down on his throne, everybody looks at him and he's talking and he's shining like a god. And they say, this isn't a man, this is a god. Not the voice of man, but the voice of a god. Now, here's the thing. Peter had already raised his hand against the Lord by killing James, killing, uh, at least jailing other believers, maybe more, and trying to kill Peter. But this added to his transgressions, didn't it? See, God is a jealous God, and He's not going to share His glory with anybody. And this is where Judgment Day came a little early. Verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down 
because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Talk about taking this guy down a notch. Here he was, really taking it all in. These folks finally realize who I am. You know, they, these, these, pe- I mean, these people were all lying. They were dependent on this guy. He was crazy. But they were, they were crying out praises to him. Not a man, but a God. And then bam. Immediately, an angel Lord struck him down because he didn't stop. He did not stop them from worshiping him. Now here's the thing. Herod wasn't ignorant. He wasn't some bystander who didn't know any better. He was actually of mixed Jewish heritage. When he would live in Jerusalem, which was a lot, he would actually keep their dietary laws. He would participate in the daily sacrifices. And he would even participate once a year in one of their festivals in which he would read a uh, a section of Scripture. In fact, the Jews were thrilled when Herod was appointed governor of the region. He knew what he should have done. But it's obvious that his heart had nothing to do with God. Does your heart have anything to do with God? This was a man who pretended, who knew the right words to say when he was around the right kind of people. But his heart was wicked and corrupt. Josephus tells us that during his speech, he doubled over in terrible pain and lingered for five days before he died. And that, by the way, is allowed from our text, if that's actually what happened. It just says he was immediately struck down, and then it says he, he was eaten by worms. It's likely that these are intestinal worms, which would have caused terrible, awful pain, an awful way to die. Uh, so they didn't have, was it ivermectin? Is that the thing that uh, they sell at Tractor Supply right now uh, for COVID or for um, worms, apparently? You know, the thing is that Josephus tells us that this was the end. This was the end of Herod. Judgment came, judgment day came early. Well, there will be a day of reckoning, but for the believer, we have been reckoned as righteous because of what Christ has done at the cross. Christ cannot be defeated. His church cannot be defeated. And you would think that all this terrible stuff that Herod had been doing, that it would have stymied the church in its growth. And the answer to that would be, you would be mistaken. Because right after this, we read in verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. It continued going out. The church was growing in in its breadth geographically, and in every geographic it was growing in depth. And more and more people were becoming Christians, not just those of Jews' heritage, but more and more it's going to be Gentiles. That by the end of the Acts, there are going to be more Gentile believers than there were Jewish believers. Well, the church grew and multiplied. Why is that? Well, ultimately, it's because of the glory, sovereign plan of God, His blessing, and His power. And you know He uses that great news that though there is a day of reckoning, if you trust in Christ, Christ has been reckoned for you. You can receive His righteous record because He has received your sinful one. So, as many commentators have pointed out, there are these two kings in this passage. Before we close, I want to quickly contrast these two kings. First, we have these two kings and their enemies. You can often tell a culture by how they treat their enemies, how they treat their prisoners, their prisoners of war. Well, what about Herod? How did he treat his enemies here? 
Well, from this chapter alone, last week and this week, we see that he's laid violent hands on his enemies. He's killed James. He's imprisoned Peter in order to kill him. He's executed the soldiers who were, quote-unquote, allowed to let him go. He played power politics with the entire region of Phoenicia, cutting off their food supply. And then he accepted their false, flattering praise, his enemies, as he seems to humiliate them before everyone else in a public arena. What, what about our king? What about King Jesus? What did he do with his enemies? What did he do for his enemies? Well, Romans 5.10 says very clearly, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. We could not reconcile. We're the problem. But through Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man, we were reconciled to God by a very costly thing, and that is His death. You see, there will be a day of reckoning. But for the believer, we are reckoned as righteous because of what happened at the cross. Second, we see these two kings in justice. King Herod perverted justice to suit his own political ends. He didn't seek Peter's life because he was a fervent Jew seeking to oppose someone whom he assumed was a false Messiah, Jesus. That's not why he did it. He did it because it pleased the Jews who were hard to govern. He killed, calling it justice. But our true king allowed himself to be killed in order to satisfy justice. It was his enemies, you and me, who had transgressed his law. And instead of smiting us, God smote his only son, our king, for us. It's a different kind of king, the true king. A good king. Finally, we see these two kings in their last breaths. I think there's a bit of an echo here to the death of Christ. They're different words in Greek, but they're the same in the English at least. First in Herod in Acts chapter 12 verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That should jog your memory. You've read that somewhere. Well, you've read it in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, Christ breathed his last in order to redeem his people. Heather, uh, excuse me, Herod breathed his last because he was not redeemed. See, there will be a day of reckoning. But for the believer... We've been reckoned as righteous because of what has happened at the cross. So how can we be reckoned as righteous? Are you playing at life? Are you playing at being religious like Herod, but in your heart it's just corruption? We've all been there, by the way. We either are there now or have been. If we have been, it's only because of the grace of God that we're no longer there. We still struggle with that corruption in our hearts. We still struggle with the pull of the flesh every day. But let's stop playing games. Aren't you tired of playing games? How can we be reckoned as righteous? See, the problem is that we have the same sinful, corrupted heart that caused Herod to do all of this. To oppose Christ, to oppose His people, and to take glory from God. The good news is that what Christ achieved at the cross and at the empty tomb, because of that, we can have His perfect record of obedience 
And the, the sacrificial death, the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus, reckoned, counted, imputed to us. How is this done? You don't do it by works. You don't reckon with your past. You don't reckon with the things you've done by trying to do good things. Doing good things is good, but it will not help you get into heaven. And you can't really do things. You can't please the Father unless you have faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Romans 4, 22-25 makes it very clear as Paul talks about the faith of Abraham. And, and this is why his faith was counted, or old language was reckoned. This is why his faith was reckoned or counted to him as righteous. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead uh, from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How can we be reckoned as righteous? By receiving the gift of salvation. By repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Christ Jesus, both faith and repentance are both a gift from God. Do you have these gifts? Has God given these to you? If you don't, pray and ask God to give you these gifts of faith and repentance. Because my friends, there is a day of reckoning. But for those who trust in Christ, we have been reckoned as righteous because of what Christ did on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of God and yet, Father, you have allowed your son to, be, to fall into your hands, to be torn in two, to be torn asunder, to be killed, to be murdered, to be executed, to be smitten by you, stricken, smitten by God, so that we who trust in Christ might be counted as righteous. We rejoice in the good news of Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.